0: is a podcast about Jeopardy! Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy! podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy! episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle.
1: And I'm Emily. And this is the week of June 5th. 2023 we had some jeopardy episodes this week but before we get into that hey we also had we also had some some lives this week as human beings how was how your how was your human i'm never how is gonna my make human, this how is my human life weird. how is your human life kyle
0: it was it it occurred in a typical circadian <laughs> rhythm like most humans uh mm-hmm. But yeah, it was, it was fine. My kids had a dance recital today and they were very cute. And I, as a person who has thus far made his career in the performing arts, I'm just going to say that dance was never the interest of mine. Mm -hmm. And that is a combination of the thing itself. And I hope I don't offend anybody, but the people that tend to, Uh, how do I say this devote their lives to it Uh seem to have a type that does not mesh well with me. And, and that is just the way it is. So they were cute. It was adorable. And we will figure out our next steps Mm. after that. So (laughs) (laughs) there it is. That,
1: That was a nice value neutral way of expressing that. I, I'm with you. I, I am also a, a dance parent experiencing some, some culture shock. My, a few weeks back was our dance recital. And my, my kind of most frustrating anecdote about that was when I took my daughter for the manicures that we get once a year. And leaving the nail salon, I took my phone out to find an email Sharing for the first time that for the recital the next morning, the dress code included no nail polish. Students needed to not be wearing nail polish. We just got like, mm-hmm. <laughs> she had just gotten her one manicure of the year. <laughs> it's like, I'm just not doing that. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. She's wearing nail it's, polish.
0: And it's not going to ruin anything. <laughs>
1: yep. It's going to be fine. These are these are they children. Are, they are small there. children doing a 90 second dance routine. Mm hmm. It's fine. It's going to be fine.
0: This will not make or break anyone's careers. Mm -hmm. We do not need to concern ourselves overly about the details.
1: Yeah. Anyway, lots of (laughs) solidarity there. I'm with you.
0: So how was your week?
1: Oh, well, we had Apocalypse Air. I'm I'm in the New York metro area. And for a while, the Air Quality Index, which... I did not know I would spend this much of my week thinking about the air quality index, you know? Um, you never
0: do <laughs> until it's an issue.
1: <laughs> it, it felt like early days of COVID where I kept refreshing the stats, you know? Yeah, the air quality index was the worst of any city in the world for a little bit there. Normally, the worst the worst air quality index in the world is in New Delhi, apparently, which I also learned this week. But um,
0: America, yeah, taking yeah. that number one spot.
1: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So, so, so that was, that was interesting. And I found, I found all my air purifiers. And hopefully this won't be relevant again, but
0: (laughs) But it might be. (laughs) It
1: might be. It might be. I saw, I saw a funny simpsons meme i can't remember what scene what the original scene was right but it's mm-hmm. you know the but the, the meme it's you know it's overwritten and it's part saying this is the worst air quality of my life and then homer <laughs> says the worst air quality it of your life, your life so, so far, far. <laughs> yeah so the, so anyway the air quality right now is a lovely like 25 ish which is you know back to normal here but but we'll see and i think i think it's still working its way across other parts of the country is that right i feel like it's it's dissipating it's not i think it's not as bad as it was anywhere yeah but yeah and we're working our way through end of school stuff. My husband has has stopped working at his job and is handling a lot of the end of school, like you have to Venmo this mom this much money so that she can do a thank you gift for that person. And then you need to fill out the spreadsheet of what you're going to send in for that event. And then you need to send it on the correct day with the label. And like, he's taken over a lot of that. And he's like, people keep asking me what I'm doing with all of my new spare time. And there isn't any, because I have to fill out all these spreadsheets and send little plates to this teacher and Venmo that person and get the kids to these extra events. And it just never ends. And
0: that is correct.
1: It's correct. It does.
0: That's the thing about adult, I like, how do adults have free time?
1: Yeah. But anyway, Jeopardy. um, Jeopardy. Jeopardy. Monday, June 5th, our contestants were Annabelle Winter, a graduate student from New York, New York, Harrison Seidel, a marketing coordinator from Burbank, California, and Jared Watson, a quality control specialist from Greenville, Texas, whose two-day cash winnings total $38,601. And the Jeopardy round categories are classic children's books, The Philippines... Task Force, it's also a boat, the championship team, and geography with G in quotation marks. We had a interesting, I thought, triple stumper at the $1,000 level of the championship team. Mm. Uh, the, the clue was in 1985, the teammates seen here, picture of two people.
0: <laughs> Do you know who those two people are? Or at least one of them? I actually my, my D.P.R. ate this one.
1: So. Oh, Wayne Gretzky, <laughs> yeah,
0: famously on this team. I didn't recognize the other one. Apparently, it's Mark Messier.
1: Yeah, so but but Jared Annabelle tried. Who are the L.A. Lakers? Which wrong sport?
0: Right? Yes, yes. correct.
1: <laughs> and then Jared knew the two people, Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messier, but they were looking for the team name. So that turned mm-hmm. into a triple stumper. It's the Edmonton Oilers. Yes. Which like nice work, Jared. Uh, right. Which, like, which,
0: I mean, it sucks. Cause he clearly knew it. Like mm-hmm. he, like he knew who the players were. He had to know they played for the Oilers. Right. But he just didn't answer the question properly. Yes. Or I guess question the answer properly.
1: Yeah. And I, I, Wonder so like is it is it possible that Annabelle recognized Wayne Gretzky and remembered that he played for Los Angeles, like like that he I, got traded or whatever to the the LA Kings.
0: It's possible. I mean, maybe. Yeah. But I mean, ultimately, the Lakers are in fact a basketball team, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I know. Wrong, wrong sport. But I I did. I was like, wait a minute, like, I know, I know not that many facts about, about sports, but like somehow Wayne Gretzky, Edmonton Oilers to LA Kings is a, is a thing that, that stuck for me. It's one to know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The great um, one. It's always good to know the great one. Yeah. We also had a triple stumper at the thousand dollar level of children or classic children's books. Mm, yes. In this picture book by Janelle Cannon, a fruit bat ends up in a bird's nest and is adopted by the mama bird. Mm. It's Stella Luna. I love yeah. Stella Luna. That's one of the earliest books that I remember. Nice. Yeah
1: yeah, that is I I have I have no problem with Stella Luna. It just happens to be I mean we have an absurd number of children's books and we just don't happen <laughs> to have that one. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I know we have shelves full of children's books. <laughs>
1: Yeah, mm. a visitor to my home who is not a big reader once looked at my, at that time, one shelf of books that I had for my baby and was like, how many books
0: do you really need for a kid?
1: (laughs) Like, I think that we have at least 20 times that many now.
0: Yes, agreed. Yeah, I I am also there. My mom's a librarian, Mm -hmm. so books are her love mm -hmm. language. Yep. But still, Luna is a good one. Mm. Yeah. Daily double number one. Is in classic children's books. It's pick number one at the $600 level. Jared found it. He was understandably at zero, so he bet 1000 The clue is, a line in this book says, Take my apples, boy, and sell them in the city. Then you will have money and you will be happy. And he gets correct with what is the giving tree. Mm-hmm. That is the secret to happiness. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jared is at 5,000. Harrison's at 2,000. Annabelle's at 1,600. And the double Jeopardy categories are city happenings. First and last names the same. Mythology. Movie continents. You name the film. The science of poetry. And four, four, which is two four-letter words for a correct response.
1: Mm-hmm. I liked the first and last names the same category. I think maybe in part because like, I, when these people, you know, these, these significant people who share a first and last name with another significant person come up uh, like, I find it like a little disorienting, right. To like Mm -hmm. same name, totally different contexts, right. Like on some of them, it's like, I know one better than the other. So like the $1,200 level commanding officer of one of the first U S steamships in the 1830s. And could he be more of a star of friends? And that's, that's Matthew Perry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right. So like, you know as as a teenager i was very familiar with the name matthew perry the actor and then when he right. comes up in history i'm always like Mat- matthew perry a- 18 18- thir- 1830s matthew perry sure matthew you have perry. that right <laughs> so yeah it in some ways it's sort of helpful to have it be have like a, a category that's like there are two people with the same name
0: right <laughs> it, um, you're not you're not crazy it is yeah. two different people with the same name mhm yeah uh, mine is the eight hundred dollar level. All three names the same. U.S. Naval hero awarded a Congressional Gold Medal and Led Zeppelin basis slash Kennedy Center honoree. That's John Paul Jones, of course, mm-hmm. because we're related. I am sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Daily double number two is in mythology. It's pick number nine at the twelve hundred dollar level, and Jared finds it. He's at ninety eight hundred with Harrison at thirty six hundred and Annabelle at negative twelve hundred. He wagers three thousand. And he gets the clue, as the fishhook of this demigod was used to help form Hawaii's islands, the least folks could do was name one after him. And he gets it correct. It is Maui. We all yes. learned that in Moana, I assume.
0: I I also assume that, although, I mean, who knows? Maybe yeah. Jared did some, you know, world mythology study.
1: Maybe. Could be. Maybe. Good Could good be. for him, if so, I guess. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, it's weird for me with things like that, with like Disney or like, you know, pop culture interpretations of things. I, I'm always like, is that Maui? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. did Disney get this? Did they just change this from the like the original story? Like, if I say this, will I sound like a complete dunce.
1: Mm, yeah.
0: Really, can I trust Disney? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. And Daily Double Number 3 is in the science of poetry. Blah. At the $1,600 level, (laughs) pick number 25. Jared also finds this one. So he found all three. That's a good way to win. He's up to 19,200. Harrison is at 10,000. And Annabelle is at 2,000. And he wagers 2,000 and gets a clue in a 1920s limerick. There was a young lady named Bright whose speed was far these three words. She gets back home before she left. And that is faster than light. Yes. And Jared gets it correct.
1: There's something unsettling about being given only the
0: first little bit of a limerick. It always, I just, I just assume it's going to be dirty. I don't know if that was your feeling, but for me, it's always like, this is not going somewhere PG.
1: Yeah. I was looking it up. It is, it is a, it is a G rated limerick. Unheard of. Yes. There was a young lady named bright whose speed was far faster than light She set out one day in a relative way and returned on the previous night. (laughs) All right. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Jared's in a lock position with 19,600. Harrison is at 8,800. Annabelle's at 2,400. The final Jeopardy category is acronyms. And the clue is it was originally a code word used by telegraph operators. Barack Obama used it in his Twitter handle. And Annabelle got it correct with what is POTUS, President of the United States. I learned that one on the pilot episode of The West Wing. Yeah. Yeah. Annabelle wagered $23.95, which gives her $47.95. Harrison also got it correct with what is POTUS and a $3,900 wager, bringing him up to $12,700. But hey, Jared had a lot game. He tried what is stop. (laughs) I think he's focusing it on telegraph operators.
0: Yeah, must have been.
1: Fair enough. Just didn't, you know, kind of get where they were trying to point, and a $1,999 wager, which drops him down to $17,601 for his third win.
0: So on Tuesday, we get the contestants, Deborah Clayman, a writer from St. Helena, California, Suresh Krishnan, a networking engineer from Suwanee, Georgia, and Jared Watson, a quality control specialist from Greenville, Texas. Whose three-day cash winnings total $56,202? And the Jeopardy Round categories are 21st century stuff, quotable notables, which cabinet department, Waterfowl Purie, RIAA top-selling artists, and Sless Chaps. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, guys.
1: This is supposed to be a family show. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So the S-less was like they. You have to give two words. One with, one spelled with an S, and then the other one is just you take away the S. So like mm-hmm. to grab with your hands fumbles an S to applaud with your hands that's clasp and clap.
1: Yeah. S-less comma chaps. It's just
0: <laughs> some somebody had a good <laughs> chuckle in the writer's room that day. Yeah. Good for you. Good for mm-hmm. you, Rose. You deserve yep. all of the actual humane treatment that you are striking for. Mm-hmm. Contestants had a bit of trouble with that. They only got the $1,000 and the
1: $200. Yeah. The $1,000, I don't know, I thought was is a fun one. A flat-topped mountain trims an S to get selfish as the Latin word that means belonging to me. That is mesa and mea. I guess maybe something about like changing languages within the wordplay. I Could find enjoyable. Yeah. A yeah. little challenging. Adds a layer of challenge. Yeah. Waterfowl. Puri. Like. Why
0: Puri? Why Puri? Just say waterfowl. Yeah. Because it's like <laughs> not. It's like they're not all, you know, pop culture. It's just like things that are generally related to waterfowl.
1: Mm hmm. And that's yeah. fine. But hey, they can throw that Pere suffix in.
0: They can throw it anywhere. Just to
1: get your goat.
0: Just to get my goat, which is not a mm-hmm. waterfowl.
1: No, because they want to be silly geese.
0: Mm-hmm. Like mother goose, which was mm-hmm. a $400 clue. Yes.
1: The $600 level of quotable notables, a physicist, the unleashed power of the atom has changed everything. Suresh tried who is Oppenheimer. Jared got the rebound with Einstein. And I feel like Oppenheimer's Oppenheimer's a good guess there, I think. You know, kind of topical because the movie's about to come out. Yeah, um, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So I thought it was, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if, if Suresh was, you know, aware that there would be a movie coming out not long after the episode aired. And, you know, Oppenheimer's kind of noted for like existential Ponderings about, about about what he has done. Yes, yeah. So anyway, I thought it was a solid guess, but a wrong one. Anyway, daily double number one is in 21st century stuff at the six hundred dollar level. Pick number twenty one. Jared finds it. He's at six thousand eight hundred. With Suresh at thirty eight hundred and Deborah at 400. Wages four hundred. He wagers four thousand. It's a bold move. I like that. And he gets the clue with French speaking areas generally. For and German speaking areas against, this country voted to become the 190th UN member. He guessed what is Belgium, but Switzerland is the response they were looking for here. So he drops down. And at the end of the Jeopardy round, he's in the lead, but you know, not as much of a lead with 3,800. Suresh at 3,000 and Deborah at 1,400. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, nonfiction TV, straight up. That's Straight like a body of water. Books and authors. It comes in waves, wave in quotation marks, this and that. And you must be 12 letters long or more to enter. The $1,200 clue there. A store specializing in men's clothing and accessories like ties and hats. Deborah tried what is warehouse, men's warehouse. uh, And Mm -hmm. then Suresh got the rebound with what is a haberdashery. Haberdashery has 12 letters. I thought of haberdasher which has 11 Mm. and could not have been accepted if somebody had said it. So, you know, tricky. I think, I think also haberdasher is the, like the person, the person, not Not the the place where it's like, like Baker and bakery. Right.
0: Yeah. There's a tough miss at the $2,000 level of it comes in waves, like tough because like, Deborah clearly knew it, but didn't phrase it quite right. Mm-hmm. The clue is during pregnancy, heartburn can result from the body slowing down these, making food stay in the stomach longer. Deborah said, what is peristalsis? Which is the thing they're talking about, but waves was in quotation mark, or wave was in quotation marks. So what they were looking for is peristaltic waves. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, yeah, we can take it because it's close enough. It was like, you didn't include wave. You, you can't can't take it
1: yeah that was that was too bad it's been a while since we did a book recommendation with emily so let me let me point out the two thousand dollar level of books and authors her novel kindred tells of dana a young black woman who is transported from the 1970s back in time to the pre-civil war south and jared knew that that was octavia butler good job jared and that novel is is a good one i mean you know heavy Mm. but but a good one i read that Last year or the year before, maybe.
0: Oh. yeah. And the $800 level of this and that we've talked about on the podcast. This planter's mascot is all class with a monocle spats and a top hat. They they conveniently left out his death and rebirth. Demise, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's Mr. Peanut. <laughs> yes. I <laughs> always, always want to bring up the, the immortal Mr. Peanut, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number... Two is in straight up at the $1,200 level. It's pick number six in the round. Jared finds it. So he has found the last five daily mm, doubles. Yeah. He is at $9,800. Suresh is at $3,000. at 1400 He wagers 3000 Gets a clue. Head straight up from Calais, and you'll be in the body of water called this straight. And he guesses, what is the English Channel? But it is the Strait of Dover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he loses another three. He's lost 7,000 on Daily Doubles this game.
1: Yeah. And then Suresh is the one who finds Daily Double number three, pick number 17 at the $1,600 level of, you must be 12 letters long or more to enter. At this point, he has 5,400 with Jared at 12,000 and Deborah at 200. He wagers 2,600. And he gets the clue, the legally mandated process of dividing up voters into new legislative regions within a state. And he gets it correct. It's redistricting.
0: So legally mandated process is because, like, my first thought is gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. But that's not that's not the same. Right. Right. Because redistricting is the legally mandated process. Gerrymandering is
1: doing it so that things come out the way you want it to. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Jared's at 12,800, Suresh is at 7,600, and Deborah's at 600, so she gets to play. We get the final Jeopardy category, Historic Organizations, and the clue is a senator called the 1949 Pact that formed this, a fraternity of peace that makes the obligation plain for us and others. Deborah got it correct with what is NATO. It was fun. I assume she's talking about Jeopardy, not NATO. <laughs>
1: not NATO. Yeah,
0: that's correct. She wagered fifty-nine or five ninety-nine. Suresh also got what is NATO and wagered three thousand. And Jared missed it. He said, "What is the United Nations?" and made a cover bet of twenty-four hundred one. So Suresh is our new champion. Hmm.
1: And that brings us to Wednesday.
0: Oh, this is show number 8888. Ooh.
1: That's fun. I missed that. That's fun. And our contestants are Colette Lee, a middle school math teacher from Paxton, Illinois. Christine Rembach, a human rights lawyer originally from Ghent, New York. And and Suresh Krishnan, a networking engineer from Sewanee, Georgia, Georgia, whose one-day cash winnings totaled 10600 The Jeopardy Run categories are Into the Woods, Company, Follies, a little night music, passion, and merrily we roll along.
0: These are all.
1: I was I, I was hoping that that you would also have picked up on the theme. I, I mean, I, you're you're a music professional, obviously. You, you obviously, do. they're all Sondheim <laughs> musicals. Yes. Yeah, I wondered whether we were going to get a Sondheim clue at all, and the round went on for quite a while before eventually we did. The twenty first pick at the six hundred dollar level of *A Little Night Music*. Stephen Sondheim composed most of the score of *A Little Night Music* in three quor- in three, three three four three four time, right? Mm-hmm. Three four. Somehow my brain did it like a three quarters.
0: Well, people like, often do refer people, to it as do three quarter. Yeah, yeah, they people will do, refer to yeah. it as three quarter time, which mm-hmm. I don't like, but yeah, it's not like wrong.
1: Yeah. Stephen Sondheim composed most of the score of *A Little Night Music* in three-four time, also known as this dance time. Colette tried what is swing time, but it's waltz time.
0: Yes, but
1: I liked that they worked in a sondheim clue
0: on this somewhere on this board, yeah, somewhere on me. the board. It's really yeah. Good. Agony and ecstasy was a triple stumper at the thousand-dollar level of passion. I think I asked a question about that in a quiz once.
1: I think you may have. Yes,
0: feels feels familiar. And of course, at the $800 level of Merrily, we roll along <laughs> I'm doing it for you. The iconic you. chariot race in this 1959 epic was shot on an 18-acre arena track in Rome. That's been her. Colette got it. Now we don't have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yep. She got it, which means it's not the deep dive this week. Because you've never done one, which even though it feels like we have.
1: It does, doesn't it?
0: It definitely does. <laughs> Daily Double number one is in A Little Night Music. At the $400 level, pick number 20. Christine finds it. She's at $1,600. Suresh is at $3,600. Colette's at 30000 And Christine wagers $1,600. Gets a clue. Chopin was a master of these meditative piano pieces. A French word meaning of the night. Oh, and she guesses what are sonatas. Mm. Uh, those are nocturnes. Yeah, Chopin is mazurkas and nocturnes. Mm-hmm. Mazurkas and nocturnes. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Suresh is at 5,800. Christina's at 800. Colette is at 3,600. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. Astronomical anagrams. Join the club. The presidential line of succession today. Etymology. A novel character breakdown. And a 90s kid. Mm -hmm. Uh Mm-hmm. I hate that category because i did so because we did so well in it <laughs> yeah mm mm-hmm. mhm yeah that's how was anamorphs a $2000 clue and a triple stumper mm mm-hmm. mhm Contest- contestants of a certain age may recall this book series by K.A. Applegate with teens shape shifting into beasts even if you don't remember the author teens shape shifting into beasts it's Animorphs. anamorphs yeah i mean i realize if you were like mm-hmm. if you're like gen x and you were like i don't know like in your late teens or 20s or something and so you didn't have kids but you weren't young enough to deal with it, like, I guess. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there are like 800 Animorphs books. Yeah. And every cover was Nightmare Fuel.
1: I don't think I read any Animorphs books. But my friend makes or made a podcast where she and her friends are rereading the Animorph series and talking about it. It's called Animorphology. <laughs> I listened to it a little bit but I didn't have like <laughs> the familiarity with the series to like, you know, kind of follow along well. Sure. But if anybody is an animorphs, you know, fan or into Anim- animorphs nostalgia, I think I, th- I think that's that should be that should be out there.
0: <laughs> that is absurd and amazing.
1: Yeah. The presidential line of succession today did not see a single correct response. Nope. And I have no judgment because I couldn't figure them out either. I feel like each of them had like one layer too much stuff to figure out. Hmm. Right? Like I, I don't I mean, know. I the, guess <laughs> may, maybe not. I got a little bogged down in like I don't know the presidential line of succession. Sure. Yeah. I guess. Okay. Sixteen hundred. He's Although- Attorney General number eighty-six and pres- presidential yeah. line successor number seven. I guess the question should just be who's the attorney general, right? right. Like if you, can, if you can, if you can like, yeah. if you can tune the rest of it out and then, you know, hopefully, you know, it's Merrick Garland. I I, I got bogged down.
0: Yeah, um. sure. I, I mean, I understand that. Also the $800 clue, this Californian is number two in the line. Does that mean that like technically the vice president is number one in the line? Right.
1: So I had the same mistake that... here that Colette made, right? Cause Colette rang in and said, who is Kamala Harris?
0: Who is also a Californian,
1: I guess. Right, who is also Californian. Kevin McCarthy is who we were looking for. But like Colette, I would I I thought, okay, the president who is currently president
0: is one, number one.
1: Number one, right? And then whoever would replace them is number two. No, no, no. Right. no. It's like the line of succession. So the first person
0: who will succeed who, who is will succeed number is one.
1: is number one, right? Yeah. yeah. So Daily Double number two is in etymology pick number seven at the $1,600 level, Colette finds it. She's at 4,800 with Suresh at 5,800 and Christine at 3,200. She wagers 2,500 and gets the clue. This holiday gets its name because it falls on the 50th day. Nowadays, the 50th day of the Easter season, and she can't come up with anything, but it is Pentecost.
0: Is Did you know it? I did, yes. Oh, I hope so. The <laughs> yeah. liturgical calendar makes a big deal of Pentecost. Yeah, I all I remember from like the liturgical days in you know the Lutheran, you know, whatever it would be like on our on our weekly like bulletin thing, whatever Sunday mm-hmm. it is, and then it's it's like blah blah, you know, Easter and all the other stuff, and then Pentecost, and then it's like. The seventh weekend of, or seventh Sunday of Pentecost, and like the fifteenth mm-hmm. Sunday of Pentecost, and like yeah. the seventy-eighth Sunday of Pentecost.
1: Yeah, um, there's not so, a lot after Pentecost. Yeah, until- there's there's you, you've got a couple options. Once you pass Pentecost, you can call them Sundays after Pentecost. You can call them Sundays of ordinary time. I guess those are your two options. Boring those are, time. Those are two options. The, the sets of readings also have the have the the
0: name proper. So as opposed, um, yes, ordinary versus proper.
1: It is the tenth Sunday of Ordinary Time. It is the second Sunday after Pentecost, and the readings are Proper Five. You probably wouldn't use Proper Five to indicate like what you know what where you are in the calendar but you can use Sundays after Pentecost or Sundays of ordinary time. Those two numbers are different because there's also ordinary time, like between when Christmas tide ends and when Lent starts. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And daily devil number three is an astronomical anagrams at the $800 level. Pick number 20. Christine finds it. She's at 4,000. Suresh is at 6,600. Colette is at 1,900. And she wagers 2,500. Clue is in 1054, one happened in Taurus. Raven soup. And she gets a correct. What a supernova.
1: <laughs> yeah. Raven soup.
0: Raven Ugh. soup.
1: <laughs> so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Christine has the lead with 8,500. Suresh is at 7,000. Colette's at 3,500. We get the final Jeopardy category, European countries. And the clue is of all the nations that border Italy, the one that didn't exist in 1990. Colette got it correct with what is Slovenia and $3,499 wager bringing her up to $69.99. Suresh got it correct as well and made the exact same dollar wager, which puts him at $10,499. And Christine tried what is Montenegro with a $5,501 wager, which drops her down to $2,999. So Suresh gets his second win
0: from second place yes and that brings us to thursday when we have the contestants allison streckel a nonprofit development director from missoula montana david ford a sales manager from pasadena maryland and suresh krishnan a networking engineer from Suwane, georgia who has now won twenty one thousand ninety nine dollars over two days we have the jeopardy round categories history hysteria two parts make a whole catch of the day Silent Letter Words, Late Night Talking, and Hairy Styles. But like, Mm -hmm. H-A-I-R-Y. Yeah. $200 clue. The center part was a big, or sorry, the center part was big in this decade when the photo here was taken. There was a picture. Allison got it correct with what is the 90s. I'll have you know, I was rocking the center part well into 2007.
1: The, the 1990s. Have you experienced yet youth referring to that that decade as, decade as the late
0: 1900s? No, I, I have not come across that. <laughs> I heard a kid call it
1: the late 1900s, not that long ago.
0: It's when you box them about the ears and tell them to get <laughs> off your lawn.
1: Yeah. Kids these days. They struggled a little bit with catch of the day. Yeah. We had four, four, four triple stumpers mm-hmm. yeah. in there. Yeah. Yeah. They got the $200 level, which was a, which was about a clue about the marlin, but then couldn't get the $400 level fish called the giant black sea, this bass. There was one about carp or koi at the $800 level, the ling tastes like this fish and Ling precedes his name in the name of another fish that is cod which I knew because of video games
0: Stardew Valley
1: Stardew Valley yeah you have to you know if you're if you're trying to be a completionist or if you're if there are certain there's there are certain quests where you have to catch a Ling cod I'm not sure I'd encountered the name of that fish before then but Mm. Mm. I, I, I put my time in trying to catch a ling cod so i could you know complete the quests yep
0: so no wrong way to know something yep the two parts make a hole i thought was enjoyable although 600 hundred dollar clue 14 year texas governor perry <laughs> and to spin over and over across the surface equals this meme we will never give up If we got it right that's a rick roll mm-hmm. it was appreciated
1: yeah all right, Daily Double number one is in history hysteria at the $600 level. So Rush finds it it is pick number three. He's at 400 with Allison at 200 and David at negative 200. He wagers a thousand and he gets the clue on the Daily News October 31, 1938 front page. Fake Radio war stirs terror through US with a picture of this actor. And he got it correct. It is Orson Welles. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Allison has taken the lead with seven thousand. David, David's at twelve hundred. Suresh is at twenty four hundred. I said them in kind of reverse order. That's okay. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> and the double Jeopardy categories are yes, you Canal literature, a mid category mid in quotation marks, romancing the stones, imposters, and big and
0: little pop culture. Mm -hmm. Got to throw out the $1,200 clue there Big and little On Parks and Rec This four-legged phenom was Pawnee's biggest star Andy sang 5,000 Candles in the Wind At his memorial As little Sebastian Mm -hmm. He's a little horse And he has 5,000 Candles in the Wind Mm -hmm. It's a real banger (laughs)
1: really do need to watch Parks and Rec You really do Yeah
0: Definitely worth it if only to just get all the all the references. And mm-hmm. the two thousand dollar clue, Al Cap created this comic strip setting. Good old Dogpatch. Suresh, so guess what's Pogo? I don't know what that is, but it's Little Abner. Allison got that. That was our high school musical. My sophomore year, hmm. it's the Little Abner musical. It's okay. <laughs> it's it's. <laughs> It's a musical. <laughs> it has some it has some humor in it. <laughs> probably the rights were inexpensive, probably, although I will say it was a hard book to play. yeah, we did we did not get like the junior version. We got the regular version. it was mm-hmm. it was tough. yeah, lots of, lots of key changes. Mm, yeah, they they struggled with the mid category. They only got the mm. clue. It describes air with heavy or heavy with water vapor that is humid. But they missed this word means just a speck a little bit, un poquito. And that's a smidgen. Allison, guess what's a midge, which I guess is close, but not quite. Yeah,
1: I I guess maybe I was thinking of smidge and thought that they Mm -hmm. would have. have. I think that I, uh, yeah, I think midge is like the little fly. Yeah. Uh, So, but I thought of smidge and was like, why didn't they take that? They probably would have had to take smidge. I think so. But smidgen is what they were looking for. Actually, similarly, after the $1,600 level of imposters, after the French Revolution people all around the world claimed to be the lost, this, the son of Marie Antoinette, Suresh tried what is the heir of the French throne. And I think just got a no, right? Yeah. I feel like that maybe should have been a be more specific. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah,
0: I don't know. If it's if it's like a common title that was referred to. Yeah. I guess lost, lost is
1: lost is in quotation marks. Lost Dauphin is what mm-hmm. they were looking for. Yeah. But like the Lost Dauphin would have been the lost heir to the French throne, right? Unless I'm, unless sure. I'm wrong about my history.
0: But I mean I guess, yeah. 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 I don't know. But I don't know. Daily double number two is in the mid category at the $1,600 level. Pick number four. David finds it. He's at 1,600. Suresh is at 2,400. Allison's at 6,200. And he bets it all. He could have bet up to 2,000, but maybe didn't want to go in the red. Uh, And got the clue. Karl Marx wrote, force is the this of every old society pregnant with a new one. And he says, what is I wish I didn't bet all my money? I have no idea. Mm. But that is the midwife. Mm-hmm. Of every old society. Yeah.
1: And Daily Double number three is in YesU Canal at the $1,200 level. Pick number 28. Suresh finds it. He's at 5,600 with Allison at 17,000 and David at 2,400. Allison has picked up 10,000 since the previous Daily Double, 10,000 and some. That's Mm. very impressive. She
0: she had a really good double jeopardy and the other two did not.
1: Yeah. So he makes it a true daily double trying to, you know, kind of get within striking distance again. And he gets the clue. In 1913, the LA Times noted an event celebrated at this site would be known as the Wedding of the Oceans. And he gets it correct. It's the Panama Canal. So he gets up to 11,200 on that daily double. And we've, we've got a game again.
0: Yes, big move. So going into Final Jeopardy, he gets a little bit more. He's at 12,800. David's at 4,400. Allison is at 17,000. Final Jeopardy category is business history. And the clue is what is dubbed the world's first initial public offering took place in 1602 in this current European capital. David guessed what is London, High Charlotte and Declan. All of that is incorrect. So he loses 4,200 and drops to 200. Suresh got it correct with what is Amsterdam, which was the Dutch East India company Mm -hmm. selling selling off stock for the first time. He wagered 4,300. So he goes up to 17,100. Allison missed it and wrote, what is Berlin? And wagered a cover bet of 86.01. Yeah. So she drops down to 83.99 and Suresh for the third time in a row. Wins from second place in Final Jeopardy. Yeah. Keeping it going, man. hmm
1: And on Friday we have the contestants Tim Haygood, a communications consultant from Washington, DC, Vicky Sear, a retired postmaster from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Suresh Krishnan, a networking engineer from Suwanee, Georgia, whose three-day cash winnings total thirty-eight thousand one hundred and ninety-nine dollars. And the Jeopardy categories are State Holidays, Pets on Film, Diaspora. Classic Toys and Games, quick books, and Retronyms.
0: As the $200 level of retronyms told us, a retronym is a noun and a modifier specifying the noun's original meaning.
1: Yes. It was
0: like like this form of entertainment here, and they showed a, a, like a, a clip and that is a silent movie. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, at the time was not called a silent movie. Right. I believe it was just called a motion picture.
1: Yeah. Retronyms are kind of fun. I was trying to describe that concept to my kids recently.
0: Yeah. Like a thing that wasn't called the thing when the thing was the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But after the thing was the thing, then it became the thing. Yeah.
1: After there was more than one kind, Mm -hmm. you had to differentiate. I hadn't thought about the thousand dollar level being a retronym, but you know, clearly it is the credits of James Taylor's album, American standard include James on vocals and this retronym. It's acoustic guitar, formerly mm. known as just regular guitar.
0: <laughs> plain old, only guitar, yeah. type
1: until there was until there was electric guitar, then you had to mm-hmm. differentiate. Mm-hmm. two Chopin related triple stumpers, but different Indeed. Chopins this week. The thousand dollar level of QuickBooks, mm-hmm. The Awakening, is by this woman with a composer surname. That is Kate Chopin.
0: Which really means if you're going on Jeopardy, just learn all about every Chopin. Yes. That's the that's, that's the takeaway that's here. That's the way to do it. The thousand dollar level of diaspora was a triple stumper. Mass deaths among this ethnicity in Ottoman lands sent others far and near. The film Apricot Groves is set in the Iranian diaspora. That's Armenia or, or among this ethnicity I guess Armenian mm-hmm. um, is the correct response the Armenian genocide was I guess maybe not much in the American news but recently as in like the last few years much in the European news mm-hmm. because I think I think the German government like issued a formal recognition of it or something like that which pissed off the Turkish government mm-hmm. because of course the Turkish government, their stance is no, there was no genocide. Yeah, of course not. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It kind of surprised me that that was a triple stumper. I thought, yeah, I thought it pointed there. Please, yeah, I,
1: I thought the first part of the clue was very clear, and then the second half kind of threw me off. I guess the film Apricot Groves is set in the Iranian diaspora. Is that Armenian the Armenian diaspora in Iran or like uh, yeah yeah, I so. yeah that makes it makes sense I just was the first part was clear and then I I was like well it, I got confused by the second part yeah mm-hmm. um makes yeah sense. I think I think had I had I been on stage perhaps I would have rung in and said Armenian but like the the second part just gave me pause it wasn't sort of parsing as easily
0: I don't know mm-hmm All right. Daily double number one is in pets on film. It is at the thousand dollar level. Pick number five. They started at the top of this category and went down it. Mm. Amazing. Rarely happens nowadays. Uh, Tim finds it. He is at 1000. Suresh is at negative 200. Vicky's at negative 400. This category wasn't apparently nice to all of us. Mm. That $400 clue everyone missed he wagers all 1000 of his dollars and he gets a clue. The title of this 2003 film about a big dog is also a symphony that premiered in 1808 in Vienna. And I feel like (laughs) (laughs) I wonder I, I mean, maybe he's just never heard of the Beethoven films, but I, I've, I wonder if maybe he just saw Movie Big Dog and was like, oh, that's Cujo. Because <laughs> he said, oh, that's Cujo. Um, that's not it. It's Beethoven's Fifth, which is really hilarious mm-hmm. to me, but that's like... <laughs> um... mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Imagining Cujo.
1: That famous that Viennese setting. orchestral work. Kujo, yes. Kujo, yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I love it. Mm -hmm. It's good. Uh, So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Suresh is at 4,800, Vicky's at 600, Tim is at 1,200. The double Jeopardy categories are Around the World. Starts with W, W in quotation marks, Eponymous Science, With This Ring, TV Who Said It, you'll name the character, and a Euro Leader Pass. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: The twelve hundred dollar level of TV. Who said it was a triple stumper? The clue was: I've been involved in a number of cults. You have more fun as a follower, but you make more money as a leader. As a leader. <laughs> once I saw, once I heard the correct response, I was like, "Oh, of course!" But I couldn't quite decide whether I should be thinking about comedies
0: or what, like, or like this is a really dark, yeah,
1: like something something thing. really dark, uh, you know. Mm. Um, so uh, it, it's Creed. Creed
0: on The Office said that. <laughs> yes, Creed, Creed Bratton. Yes. Possibly the best character on the show. Yeah. Apparently, uh, he got a speaking role because he just decided to speak one day in a shot, and then they had to pay him, <laughs> like, per union rules. So that's why he became a speaking role. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I, I think that's how that worked, if I recall yeah. correctly.
1: In eponymous science, at the $800 level, Vicky got a nice rebound. The clue was the temperature at which a mineral's magnetic properties change sharply is the point named for this 1890s physicist and husband. Oh, I missed the ant husband at the end. Um, uh, Suresh rang in and said, What is the Curie point? Mayam asked for specificity, and he said the Marie Curie point, but it did have ant husband. In there, uh, and so having heard the, be more specific after Curie, Vicky was able to ring in and say, "What is the Pierre Curie point?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, Suresh got it correct, but I had some I had some hesitation at the two thousand dollars level of eponymous science. Born in eighteen fifteen, mm. this English math man gave us many eponymous things algebra logic search and operators i know i knew that the adjective was boolean right that it is boolean logic and i was like is his last name just bool or is it or is it booly yeah like is it yeah did they did they drop off some suffix to get to boolean mm-hmm. Boo, you know is it bools like boolsian would be would be difficult i could see that you know turning into right. boolean right anyway It is just bull George Bull. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Daily double number two is in that category around the world at the $1,200 level. Tim finds it at pick number four. He's at 1600 with Suresh at 5,600 and Vicky at 1,000. He wagers 2,000 and he gets the clue. In 1898, the Rough Riders charged up Kettle Hill as well as this more famous one in Cuba. He can't get to it. He says, what's Bunker Hill? But we are looking for San Juan Hill
0: here. And Daily Double number 3 is in a Euro leader pass at the $2,000 level. Pick number 21, and uh, Suresh finds this one. He's up to 15,200. Vicky's at 4,200. Tim is at 4,400 his double jeopardy has been good. The others have not been great. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wagers only a thousand. So he gets a clue leaving a 2008 tragic comedy by him was his first play in more than 20 years and drew from his time as Czech Republic president. And he guesses who is Valesa. Valesa. Uh, uh, w- Valesa. Wale- I, th- Wale- I, th- Wale- I think, Wale- I, think Wale-
1: I, I think he pronounced it Valesa. I think that's, that. that's how I generally hear it. Hear it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, but it's Václav Havel. Yeah, Václav Václav. Václav.
1: Václav. The 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 C you pronounce like a T S. It's Václav. Václav. Václav mm-hmm. Havel. For some reason, I uh, routinely reverse Lech Walesa and Václav Havel. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those uh, lots of sympathy there. <laughs> I I do that. I do that. I maybe have done that. <laughs> In, in, in some trivia setting at some point, uh, said one name when I, when I knew it was the other, you know, when I was thinking of the other person. So, mm-hmm. you no, know. But anyway, at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Suresh has a lot game with 15,800. Tim is at 7,200. Vicky's at 3,800. The final Jeopardy category is British novels. And the clue is midway through this 1928 novel, the title character briefly takes there instead of his or her. Um, Vicky got it correct with What is Orlando by Virginia Woolf. Mm-hmm. And she's wagered $37.95, uh, which gives her seventy five ninety five. Tim tried What is the Importance of Being Earnest, although he didn't finish writing it, with a $506 wager that drops him down to $6,694. And Suresh tried What is Dr. Jekyll and hide. The year isn't quite right, but it's a clever guess about what the there is pointing to. Yeah, I guess, yeah. You know? But uh he he wagered zero, so he loses nothing and gets his fourth win with fifteen thousand eight hundred. Yeah. Yeah. He's having a nice run. I'll look forward to seeing him on Monday. Yeah. Uh, So this is the point in the middle of the episode when we remind you that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potent potables. If you want to help us not lose money making this podcast, you can uh, slide us a few bucks a month there. And um, we have a little bit of exclusive content. We try and post the quiz questions after we record so that uh, Patreon supporters can see them before the episode is live. And uh, we really greatly appreciate those of you who are doing that. Thank you very much. And of course, uh, there are more important things in the world, we think, than our podcast. Hopefully you agree there are more important things in the world than our podcast. Uh, although, you know,
0: certain- although thank you if you don't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, so some of some of the things that we think are probably, you know, more important than us uh, are,
0: are in our show notes.
1: Do you have deep dive guesses, Kyle?
0: Are we talking about black holes? We're not talking about black holes. Are we talking about Francis Bacon? Uh, no, neither neither Francis Bacon. None of the Bacons. Are we talking about Huxley?
1: I thought about Huxley, but no, I'm heading in a much more lowbrow literary direction. I think we joked around about this possibility. Um, I was I, animorphs dang it oh I even <laughs> thought would she
0: talk about animorphs Well, but okay, she said so she didn't know about I it don't she really, hasn't read I don't animorphs.
1: I don't okay so here here is what I ended up thinking might be fun is that I was I I didn't like go back into the archives to search and verify this but I feel like numerous times there have been questions about kind of mass market like juvenile slash young adult series that have a gajillion titles Mm -hmm. and like everyone just sort of stares blankly ahead until the like the timer sounds and we move on to the next question Right. right and i was like you know what what if i tried to see it turns out that it's difficult to make a um a comprehensive list of like children's series with a huge number of books. I'm pretty sure that I have some missing. I went through a few different web pages, but I was like, what if I try and see, you know, what are the series that have had, say, 50 or more children's books in the series and just like run through here's a series, its author, you know, a little bit about it so that, you know, perhaps mm. we will yeah. uh, have a better sense of some of these kind of popular series with a gajillion titles. Um, Some of them, some of them a little bit obsolete. Uh, Some of them still running and still popular. Okay. Yeah. So Animorphs kind of fits in, kind of fits in there, but there'll be some other hopefully familiar ones as well. And maybe some that, you know, maybe you've heard of once or twice, or you're like, I know that, that, that series title, but not much about it. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's what I'm doing today. Okay. All right. I went through a bunch of different, like, articles and websites and things trying to get good information and get get a decent list. I'm sure that there are some missing. I had them for a little bit in like pseudo alphabetical order with like some, you know, with some variation. But then I, then I reorganized them to be more chronological. Hmm. And I'm not doing picture books. I'm trying not to do comic books. Some of these have like some illustrations. But like if we headed into like Clifford and oh, yeah. you know like oh, I can gosh. read like that it would get just impossible right so mm-hmm. like we're thinking like we're thinking like Nancy Drew is included boxcar yeah. children is included but like nothing that's more of a picture I'm trying to avoid like picture books right. and, and graphic novels and I'm, I stayed a little flexible about like kind of what specific age of children they're marketed to because that's a that that's a little fuzzy mm-hmm. but Anyway, yeah. All right. So, uh, chronologically first, the Bobsy Twins. Mm. My grandmother always wanted me to read more Bobsy Twins books. Uh, The first of the 72 Bobsy Twins books was published in 1904 and the last in 1979. Uh, The series related the adventures of the children of the Bobbsey family, family, which includes two sets of fraternal twins. There are Bert and Nan who are 12 years old, and there are Flossie and Freddie who are six. And these books were published uh, by the Stratemeyer Syndicate, and that name is going to just keep coming up because the Stratemeyer Syndicate was behind a lot of the huge series of the earlier decades of the 20th century. Edward Stratemeyer is believed to be the author of the first volume in 1904, numerous authors contributed to the series over the years, but all of the books were published under the pseudonym Laura Lee Hope. The earliest Bobbsey books were mainly episodic strings of adventures, and then uh, as the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew became popular, uh, detective plots began to dominate the series. So that's that's the Bobbsey Twins. I was surprised to find out that the Bobbsey Twins are two sets of twins. That was mm-hmm. that was yeah, me too. That was news to me. Tom Swift is uh. The main character of six series of American juvenile science fiction and adventure novels. Um, I wasn't 100% sure if Tom Swift fit in here because I was trying to go for series that had 50 or more uh, titles. And there were six different Tom Swift series, none of which quite, quite hits 50, I think. Mm-hmm. but you know what? We're going to count it. Um, the first one came out in 1910. Uh, there's over a hundred volumes across these six series. And there are actually two Tom Swifts. The first one becomes Tom Swift senior. Uh, he was created by Edward Stratemeyer, the founder of the Stratemeyer syndicate. And the series continued again with various ghost writers. Uh, most of the books are credited to the pseudonym Victor Appleton, uh, translated into many, Languages the Tom Swift books have sold more than thirty million copies worldwide. The first series features Tom Swift who becomes Tom Swift Senior, um, but he's he's the Tom Swift of the of the first forty volume series, and then his son Tom Swift Junior is the protagonist of the thirty three volumes of the Tom Swift Junior Adventures, the eleven volumes of the third Tom Swift series, and and, and so on. The Tom Swift books have been credited with assisting the success of American science fiction and with establishing the Edisonade Edisonade, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but like, like mm. Thomas Edison, um, stories focusing on a brilliant scientist or inventor and their, you know, their scientific prowess and creations as, as kind of a, a cultural trope. Uh, the series writing style, which was sometimes adverb heavy, gave us the name for a kind of pun known as a Tom Swifty. Hmm. Are are you familiar with Tom Swifties? I am not. Uh, someone should turn on the light. He said brightly, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yep. Okay. Yeah. That's a Tom Swifty. All right. So Boxcar Children is a children's book series, um, created by Gertrude Chandler Warner, Uh, It has more than 160 titles today. It was originally, the first book was originally published in 1924 and reissued in a shorter revised form in 1942. It tells the story of four orphan children, Henry, Jesse, Violet, and Benny Alden, who um, they're called the boxcar children because they find an abandoned boxcar in the forest and they create a little home for themselves. And they're a little, you know, self-sufficient orphans. They eventually, are reunited with their grandfather, a wealthy and kind man, and and come to live with him. And he moves their boxcar to his backyard to use as their playhouse. And then the rest of the books are about their adventures and mysteries in their neighborhood and at other places they they visit. Uh, The first 19 of the series were by by Gertrude Chandler Warner and, uh, and the rest were ghostwritten. The Chalet School books, I think, have mostly been lost to history. I hadn't heard of these until I was looking up Children's book series, 58 school story novels by Eleanor M. Brent Dyer, uh, initially published between 1925 and 1970. The fictional school, the Chalet School, was initially located in Austrian Tyrol before it was moved to Guernsey in 1939 following the rise of the Nazi party and then moved to Herefordshire following the Nazi invasion of the Channel Islands. Um, Mm. And then (laughs) maybe maybe because they kept running into um, problems with current events, the chalet school then was moved to a fictional island off the coast of Wales, and then finally to Switzerland. And it's, you know, it's, it's boarding school novels, various girls arrive at the school with various personal problems or behavior issues or attitude things. And then the well-behaved classmates and the, and the school mistresses uh, help them to see the error of their ways and turn into model pupils. Um, of course. Yes. Some titles, the school at the chalet, Joe of the chalet school, the princess of the chalet school, you know, that's they. there, there are a few that don't uh, have chalet school in the title, but most, mostly they do. And then we have the Hardy boys, uh, Frank and Joe Hardy are fictional characters who appear in several mystery series for children and teens. Um, they're amateur amateur sleuths solving cases that have stumped the adults around them. Uh, the series. Dumb adults. Yeah. Uh, it was created by the Stratemeyer Syndicate and the writer Edward Stratemeyer. Uh, mostly written by, you know, written by several ghostwriters, most notably Leslie McFarlane, but everyone was under the pseudonym Franklin W. Dixon. The Hardy Boys Mystery Stories is the longest running series of books uh, about the Hardy Boys. That one ran from 1927 to 2005 with 190 volumes. Although there are some people who consider only the first 58 to be canon. And then there's a Bunch of other spin off series, 127 volumes of the Case Files series, 39 of the Undercover Brothers series, and there are Hardy Boys Adventures still coming out. Uh, Over 70 million copies of Hardy Boys books have been sold worldwide. And then we've got Nancy Drew and her spin off series. The Nancy Drew Mystery Stories is the longest running main series of the Nancy Drew franchise, published under the pseudonym Carolyn Keene. Uh, there are 175 novels published between 1930 and 2003. Then there's the spin-off The Nancy Drew Files, uh, which ran from 1986 to 1997. In 2003, Simon & Schuster ended the Nancy Drew Mystery Stories series and replaced it with Nancy Drew Girl Detective, which was a flop. And then the Nancy mm. Drew Diaries uh, took its place in 2013. There were some rewrites of Nancy Drew books. Um, Edward Stratemeyer's daughter Harriet Adams began rewriting the books in 1959, sometimes substituting entirely new plots while retaining the same title uh, mm. for some books. So there's there's some, mm. there's some interesting stuff going on there. Uh, Nancy Drew is originally depicted as a 16-year-old uh, girl, but is later rewritten as an 18-year-old. You know, she does detective-y stuff. Uh, She lives in the fictional town of River Heights with her father, who is an attorney, and their housekeeper, Hannah. And here's another one that I'd never heard of. uh, The Biggles books. Have you heard of these? Nope. Okay, by William Earl Johns, uh, who wrote as Captain W.E. Johns. Um, the The first Biggles book, The Camels Are Coming, a reference to the Sopwith Camel. Uh, which we oh. talked about recently, was published yes. in 1930, August 1932. Um, and Johns would continue to write Biggles stories until his death in 1968. Uh, there are between 84 and 101 books, depending on how you count, because he introduced this Biggles, which is like a nickname for like something Bigglesworth or something like that. Uh, he introduced this character as like kind of a, like a, you know, supporting character or minor character in some other book. And then ended up like featuring him in a lot of, you know, a lot of children's novels. So depending on if you count like the ones where he first appears and the ones where he appears as like a peripheral character, somewhere between 84 and 101. John's died while still writing. Biggles does some homework, which was never completed, but was released in 1998 as a strictly limited edition of 300 copies in paperback. And then in 2007, a further limited print run of 300 hardback copies of the unfinished book was released. You know, it's a wartime, like, you know, pilot adventure stuff, I think is the, you know, kind of the, the plot here. Hmm. I have a huge chronological gap. I don't know if there were hugely popular children's series that just came and went between the 1930s and the 1980s and i and i'm not like and i just didn't like find like the records of them or Mm -hmm. i mean a lot of these started in the 1910s 20s 30s and are still are still going so so
0: maybe they just didn't so maybe they yeah
1: maybe there were just not new ones starting until we get to sweet valley Sweet Valley High is uh, a series of young adult novels attributed to American author Francine Pascal, uh, who presided, she was a real person. A lot of these other names are just names that were made up as pseudonyms for like collectives of ghost writers overseen by a publishing company. Uh, but okay. Francine Pascal is a real person. Uh, she presided over a team of ghostwriters who produced the series. The books chronicle the lives of identical twins, Jessica and Elizabeth Wakefield, who live in the fictional Sweet Valley, California, near Los Angeles. Uh, the series began in 1983 and concluded 20 years later after the publication of 181 books, several spin-off series, including Sweet Valley Senior Year, Sweet Valley University, Sweet Valley Kids. Um, there was a television adaptation as well. And in 2017, a film adaptation was also announced. The Sweet Valley High books took up so many shelves. On the. <laughs>
0: I believe. Well, yeah, there yeah. are one hundred and eighty-one of there's them. They're done.
1: Hey, let's choose your own adventure is a little bit of a weird one here, but I, I, think, I think it fits the parameters. I think it counts. Yeah. Um. So, the choose your own adventure is a series of children's game books where each story is written from a in in the second person, uh, with the reader assuming the role of the protagonist and making choices that determine the main character's actions and the outcome of the plot. Right. So you you read you start on page one and you at some point you. Uh, You know, you're, you're uh, given some kind of turning point, right? Like if you rush into battle, turn to page 30. And if you retreat, you know, turn to page 45 or like whatever. And and you continue reading based on the choice you've made. Probably, probably people who are listening have encountered these. But anyway, Uh, the series was based on a concept by Edward Packard. Um, It was one of the most popular children's series during the 1980s and 90s, selling more than 250 million copies uh, between 1979 and 1998. There were 184 books in the original series. The the rights changed hands a couple of times. When Bantam, uh, now owned by Random House, allowed the Choose Your Own Adventure trademark to lapse, uh, the series was relaunched by Choose Co., uh, which now owns the trademark, and uh, another throwback to a recent deep deep dive, um, Choose Co. actually sued Netflix over Bandersnatch, which oh. had a choose your own adventure kind of structure to it, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember you alluded to that in the quiz. And I was I was looking this up. and I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. That's an interesting connection. The Babysitter's Club. Is, of course, of course, is a series of novels written by Anna Martin, published by Scholastic between 1986 and 2000. Uh, it sold 176 million copies. Uh, Martin wrote about 60 to 80 novels of the series, but the subsequent ones were written by ghostwriters. It's about a group of friends living in the fictional suburban town of Stony Brook, Connecticut, who run a, a local babysitting service. Uh, the original four members are Christy, Marianne, Claudia, and Stacy but then there are other members throughout the, the series. Members are like around 12 to 14 years old, sort of young, young teenage protagonists told in, in first-person narrative and dealing with issues like illness, moving, and divorce. When publishing ceased in 2000, there had been 213 novels published in the series and there have been various spinoffs and adaptations. A notable recent one was the 2020 Netflix series, which ran for two seasons and then was canceled. As Netflix series, Netflix series just all, almost always seem to be. Yeah, um, I have no idea whether the Netflix Babysitters Club series was was any good, but they do seem to cancel everything after a season or two. They do. Yeah, I was surprised when I was putting this together chronologically to find out that Fear Street comes before Goosebumps. Fear Street is hmm. a teenage horror fiction series written by RL Stein, starting in 1989. Uh, Fear Street books take place in the fictionalized town of Shadyside and feature average teenagers who encounter malignant sometimes paranormal adversaries. Some of them are just straightforward murder mysteries other have others have paranormal elements. The Fear Street books are more gruesome than the Goosebumps books. Oh I didn't make a note of how many there are, but over 80 million copies of Fear Street books have been sold. Mm. And then Goosebumps started just a little later. Uh, also by R.L. Stein, 62 books were published under the Goosebumps series from 1992 to 1997. Each one has a different child character and setting, but they're, you know, just all like spooky books written at a 3rd to 7th grade reading level. And then there were various spin-off ser- series all uh, with Stein's name on them. Give Yourself Goosebumps, Tales to Give You Goosebumps, etc. Over 400 million books sold worldwide in 35 languages. The Bailey School Kids books are supernatural children's books, um, co-authored by Marsha T. Jones and Debbie Dady, 51 in the main series. And there are some spin-off series as well, uh, published from 1990 up till the present. Those ones are still going. In each story, the Bailey School kids encounter a relatively innocuous character, such as a school teacher who may or may not be a mythical being. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: it's kind of left open-ended, I guess, whether they are or not. Uh, So some of the first few titles, vampires don't wear polka dots, werewolves don't go to summer camp, Santa Claus doesn't mop floors, leprechauns don't play basketball. Magic Treehouse is the next one on my list. We've talked about Magic Treehouse a little bit because we're getting into... Stuff that was being heavily marketed when my kids were reading. Mm-hmm. But it started being published in 1992. And uh, there are still Magic Treehouse books coming out. Uh, written by Mary Pope Osborne, an American author. This one is, there's more than 50. If you count the kind of two halves as like all one thing, but maybe maybe I shouldn't have. There's books one through 28 are the Magic Treehouse books. And then from 29 on, it's Magic Treehouse Merlin missions. The the main characters are Jack and Annie Smith, uh, two siblings in the fictional town of Frog Creek, Pennsylvania, who uh, go on magical adventures in their treehouse. There are like historical time travel elements. Um, It turns out that Morgan Le Fay is sending them on these adventures... Um, and then Merlin becomes prominent in the later series. First few titles in this one: Dinosaurs Before Dark, The Night at Dawn, Mummies in the Morning. And adaptations of this one include a like a full like musical, um, and also a planetarium show, which played at the planetarium near us, and I took my kids to see it. It was it was an interesting adaptation. It was kind of fun. I'm sure yeah. it does. Yeah. Sure it is. And Animorphs comes up now. Yay, Yay, Animorphs, a science fantasy series of children's books. Uh, It was written by Catherine Applegate and her husband, Michael Grant. They wrote together under the name K.A. Applegate, uh, published by Scholastic. It's told in first person with all six main characters taking turns narrating the books through their own perspectives. um, Published between... 1996 and 2001 there are 54 books in the series plus 10 companion books the story revolves around five humans jake marco cassie rachel and tobias and one alien nicknamed axe i i won't try <laughs> to uh, it's very long uh, yeah the light
0: name yes. yeah
1: they obtain the ability to transform into any animal that they touch uh they name themselves animorphs A portmanteau of course of animal and morphers and then they use their ability to battle a secret alien infiltration of earth by a parasitic race of aliens resembling large slugs called year mm-hmm. that can take any living creature as a host by entering and merging with their brain through the ear canal. Mm-hmm. I read some more stuff about animorphs. I
0: feel like maybe I should actually read some anamorph
1: books now. Uh,
0: it would take you less time than the research did.
1: Yeah. Um, there is an animorphs movie in development is there? There is. Yeah. And this one is maybe maybe too illustrated to really fit, but I'll throw it in anyway. Geronimo Stilton. Do you know Geronimo Stilton? I don't know Geronimo yeah. Stilton. Yeah, Geronimo Stilton is an Italian children's chapter book series created by Elisabetta Dami and written under the pen name of the title character. So our I guess our English versions are translations published by Scholastic Corporation since February 2004. Geronimo Stilton is a mouse. Uh, The series is set on a fictional version of Earth. You know, all the people are anthropomorphic mice and rats. And uh, Geronimo Stilton is a mouse who lives in New Mouse City on Mouse Island. Uh, He is in the Geronimo Stilton universe. Geronimo Stilton is a best selling author. Uh, He works as editor and publisher for the newspaper The Rodents Gazette. He is a mild mannered mouse who likes to live a quiet life, but somehow he just keeps getting into, um, fantastical adventures. Uh, and so then the Geronimo Stilton books are fictional memoirs of these adventures that he, that he keeps getting into and they're, they're chapter books, but they have like graphic elements. There's lots going on with like colored words and different typefaces and stuff. And, and some, uh, I think illustrations as well. Anyway, that's Geronimo Stilton. And I think, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there are, there, there are series I've missed, but that's what I was able to find trying to use the parameter of 50 or more books in the main series, children's series. So yeah, yeah. hopefully that was, hopefully that, that, you know, helped us get a little more familiar with some of these, some of these titles. Um, I, I learned some new stuff, looking them up and, uh, yeah.
0: So are you ready for a quiz? I am ready for a quiz. Okay. I think. The theme of this quiz is morph. Okay.
1: All right. Question one. A morpheme is the smallest meaningful constituent of a linguistic expression. What language uses what are called mouth morphemes to convey additional meaning adding emphasis or nuance to words. Perhaps the most prominent speaker of this language today is Marley Matlin.
0: Okay. Um, I don't know who Marley Matlin is.
1: Oh, that would help a lot.
0: That would help a lot. I'm not even sure how to like begin approaching this. Mm. Um I, I really don't know even know where I'm gonna get with this. I'll just I'll pass. I won't waste more time.
1: Okay. Um, I think I have a hint. All right, um, this language is spoken in certain certain communities in uh, a certain community in the United States and most of Anglophone Canada, and its closest related language is used uh, in France.
0: Uh I really have right. no idea. <laughs>
1: okay. sorry. all right. Sorry for torturing you. Um American Sign Language.
0: Oh. Okay.
1: Yeah. So Marley Matlin is the the famous deaf actress. Mm. And in American Sign Language, mouth morphemes are the use of mouth shapes to add, um, they're often used like sort of like adverbs. Ah. So in conjunction with a sign, a mouth morpheme can add, you know, sort of a, a nuance or like it can mean like a lot or a little or, mm-hmm. you know, in the normal way or like whatever mouth morphemes are, are more complicated than I'm representing. But
0: I, I get you but what yeah. you're saying, though. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, all right. All right. Question two, Uh, you certainly know the Morpheus of mythology, Uh, the Morpheus uh, character in Neil Gaiman's Sandman series, and uh, the one who shares that name in the Matrix. But can you tell me what early comic strip features King Morpheus as a recurring character who summons the title character to Slumberland? Created, Created by Windsor McKay, this comic ran from 1905 to 1927
0: mmm I also don't think I know this one. Um uh, the title character
1: is not a clownfish.
0: Okay, so that makes me think of Nemo.
1: hmm
0: So I'm just gonna say Nemo. I don't that's my guess. I don't all know all right. <laughs> oh, I have to decide whether I'm giving it to you. It's a little Nemo. Well, that's not the title. Yeah.
1: yeah. All right. Yeah, I think that's that's my inclination. I just feel bad for not giving you the points because you got almost that, there. L- yeah. That's L- okay. Yeah. Little Nemo in Slumberland is okay. this uh, this early comic strip. It was, it was pretty influential. Um, it was the inspiration as well for Maurice Sendak's In the Night Kitchen. Um, and mm. also there's a bunch of uh, Little Nemo references in Neil Gaiman's Sandman's Sandman series as well.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: Yeah. All right. Question three. A female Hawaiian garden spider is typically 5.1 to 6.4 centimeters long, while a male of the same species is typically no more than 1.9 centimeters long. This is an especially stark example of what phenomenon which fits the quiz category?
0: Uh, What is that term? I do know this term. It is like okay, I think it's sexual dif- dimorphism?
1: That is exactly correct.
0: Good All job. Right. Yay.
1: Nice. Yeah. Many, many, many animals are sexually dimorphic, but it's it there are certain spider spe- species where it's like especially pronounced like this one that I mentioned where the where the females are, you know, three times the size of the male spiders. Also certain species of Birds, it's especially noticeable, right? Think about like mallards, peacocks, um, where there are like really super obvious differences in plumage where um, they almost don't look like the same species.
0: Um, mm-hmm.
1: All right. Question four. Uh, morphine was first isolated by Friedrich Serturner in 1804. A few years later, what pharmacist began large scale commercial production of the substance? Although he was German, his namesake company is now headquartered in New Jersey. Its most successful products these days include Gardasil and Verivax, as well as medications whose names I didn't recognize for diabetes and cancer and other things.
0: Is it? mm, Oh, maybe this isn't right. Is it Bayer?
1: No, I think Bayer is still headquartered in Germany. Uh, Okay. Um, Yeah, it's Merck.
0: Oh, gotcha! Yeah, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, indeed.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Merck was the first large-scale producer of morphine. They also, I, if I if I remember my research right, uh, we're do, did a lot with cocaine.
0: <laughs> so nice. Um,
1: yeah. Uh, back when we were figuring all that stuff out.
0: Yes, figuring it out.
1: All right. Question five. The Amazing Adventures of Morph is a British stop-motion claymation series created by Aardman Animation, uh, which is more famous for what cheese fan and his canine companion?
0: That's Wallace and Gromit.
1: It is Wallace and Gromit. Cheese, Gromit.
0: Ah, Love Wallace and Gromit.
1: love those. They're so good. They're Um, so good. Yeah. I wasn't familiar with The Amazing Adventures of Morph at all, so I'm going to have to...
0: Nope. Yeah, not at I'm all. gonna
1: have to. I'm gonna have to go look that one up. Um, morph is just he's a, he's just he's just a little brown clay guy. Um, mm, yeah,
0: they didn't yeah. try too hard with that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> all right, I wrote a really hard quiz. I'm sorry. You're at 20 That's points, fair. but hey, the final category is video
0: games. Well, then I guess I better bet it all.
1: Yeah, I think you should. Uh, it's a video game question. The character Morpho Knight. Is the final boss of the Isolated Isles Forgo Dreams level of a recent title in What Video Game Series? The series debuted in 1992, and the titular character was given his name in honor of the American lawyer who mm. defended the company in a trademark infringement lawsuit.
0: The Morpho Knight? I know Meta Knight. Mm. That's Kirby. Yeah. Kirby,
1: it's Kirby. Yes, Morpho Knight is uh like a, he's like the the bizarro world version of of uh of Meta Knight.
0: Mm, okay.
1: Yeah, I needed I needed to go with Morpho Knight to get to you know to get to, it get to, fit to morph. It. Yeah, right. yeah. So so yes, Kirby Kirby is the response here. Yay. Nice job.
0: Forty points. That's more than none.
1: Yes, nice recovery. Do you know Thank about you. this? Do you know about this trademark infringement lawsuit? No. Yes. Um so I believe Universal sued Nintendo claiming that the character Donkey Kong was an infringement on their King Kong, King Kong. Mm-hmm. trademark. Mm-hmm. They were successfully defended by a lawyer named John Kirby and so Kirby was named after their lawyer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're gonna honor you with this little pink guy who swallows everything yeah congrats I, I, well, hey, it, it's, that's a
1: fun claim to fame yeah sure yeah i mean yeah. at this
0: point but what if it what if it had just been this like little forgotten game about oh, this weird yeah. pink blob that just swallows stuff <laughs>
1: that's fair enough yeah yeah so that that's how kirby got his name uh that story always cracks me up well it's, yeah Hey, I a nice nice job. Nice recovery. Sorry sorry I went a little obscure.
0: It's okay. It's um, okay to not know things.
1: Yes, yes it absolutely is. But Hopefully we all know a few more things than we did at the beginning of the episode. I I, I certainly learned some things. Yeah, hopefully our listeners did as well. Listeners, thank you for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you have a minute to do that. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potent potables. And if you have friends who are fans of Jeopardy, let them know about us
0: you can all find us on facebook at potent potables on twitter at potent potables one our email address is potent at gmail.com and our website is potentpod.com. and we will be back next week with more jeopardy so until then may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker